The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. I think too that if we do a case study and we talk about it and we, we kind of say what our process is and the way that we think about things and link it to the research, maybe it will help clinicians to know that they're probably thinking about things the right way. I think sometimes there's just insecurities around trying something new or even doing what you think you should do, especially if you don't have a mentor available to you, which I always recommend anybody have a mentor of some type or even work in a clinic where there are seasoned therapists there, or at least people have some more experience than you do, because it's 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 hard, especially when you're a new grad. It's, it's hard to put all those pieces together in a meaningful way. And then, yeah. In the previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, Brain Splain, Pete Style, Pete and I talked about my fast car and his work in research. And then we learned about learning, the circulatory system, the difference between the two, and neuroplasticity. We learned about motor learning, college, and motor cognition, and how motor learning is the original template for all learning. He talked about brain-derived neurotropic factor, exercise, sleep, and protein synthesis being essential for all learning to occur. We talked about the homunculus man, the motor cortex, and why hands-on learning is key for all learning. Pete talked about using eating, mating, and patterns to keep an audience engaged. We also talked about the da Vinci man, arm span, and murmurations of starlings to understand how the brain works. We talked about repetition, challenge, and meaning being necessary for learning, and why we should celebrate small wins to help us stay motivated and feel life satisfaction. Lastly, we talked about hemispherectomies and the ability for people who've had them to be independent. Seems like that takes away excuses for us. And then Pete tied in a little bit of action observation and tossing balls in class along with repetitive practice and measuring change. 
to wing it? I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, hey, Deb Battistella, how the are you? Hey, Pete Levine, I am fantastic. Ready to move to Florida. How are you? Well, do tell. Um, how was your trip to Florida? How did the Gulf R? It's a Gulf R. Is that right? It's a Gulf R. A Gulf oh, R. God. Okay. And how did that go? How did it go with the uh, two fine young ladies from NeuroHub, Doro and Lynette? And and then I saw a picture of you holding a baby on Facebook, and you looked alike, you two. You're both like rosy baby cheeks. Oh, they, that's an old picture. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah, that's, look, that's the granddaughter that lives in New Jersey when oh, she was okay. a baby, and she's turning eight. Yeah, so that was an old one. Okay, um, so so let's go. So okay. how was the trip out there? You saw your aunts. What happened? Oh, gosh, the trip was amazing. I saw, yes, I saw two aunts, um, both in their 90s. One is doing amazingly well. The other lives in assisted living, just kind of living there. They're both adorable, and I love them. And then... That's very I, sweet, but did you get to Tim Hortons? That's what I wanted. Well, I didn't even go there first because I, I arrived so late and went to the assisted living facility they agreed to to let me come in later to visit that's the nice thing about rural towns they you know they don't have these strict rules like bigger cities have yeah so i'm not I like they have, there. like they they i bet they have COVID issues too so they, mm -hmm. they let you in that was cool and then you met your cousin there yeah i met my cousin there it's her mom and um so we visited with her mom for a little while and then my cousin and her siblings own a restaurant so what that was closed but because she's the owner, we could go there and hang out. And what? we talked until something I haven't done in a long time, but it was after 1 a.m. when I left there. And then I had the joy of driving in the hills of rural Ohio in fog, dense fog to get to my hotel. And I was really thankful for white lines on the side of the road. Yeah, I can imagine. That's stressful. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I've been in really dense fog. Actually, Isla and I, my wife and I, traveled in one and I couldn't see her and she was, you know, probably 50 feet in front of me. We're going 50 miles an hour. It's like, you don't know. So that, that sucks. Yeah. It's Welcome to Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The best part. And you yeah, so that was fun. So how long did it take you to get, since you go from straight from Ohio um, and then you got, went to your hotel and then you went straight to Florida. I did this over four days, four days there and four days back. It was a nice relaxing trip. Oh, and then I drove right on to Tampa, stayed Good. in this amazing condo. So the ocean was on one side what? and a river was on the other. No. And I saw a dolphin. In the river? In no, the river. In the it river? Was, it was it's in the river. The saltwater river. Well, it kind of like it's, it's on the Gulf. So it just kind of flows into this river. Flows and the in, dolphins. flows around. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So either way that you looked, you were just surrounded by beauty. Yeah. Okay. And how are the grandkids? The grandkids are so darn cute. The youngest one, the one that had the birthday, she doesn't like me. I was told not to take it personally. She doesn't really like new people. Yeah. I got how her. Old is she? How old is She's, she? She has turned one. One? What the heck? Give I know. You know yeah. what, though? She let me hold her because I had her bottle. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, if you have the right tools, they will <laughs> let you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. Fantastic. So, yeah. NeuroHub. NeuroHub. So can I just say that driving to NeuroHub was maybe a tiny bit stressful Why? because because you really have to drive like you're on a race. Like those people in Florida, they think they're on a racetrack. Mm. They weave in and out and, uh, and such. Yeah. 
And I made it there alive. And I was really happy for that. Um, they have a really cool business. Like aesthetically, it looks cool because the building looks kind of cool. Or is the it just building? Kinda- it's in this really cool building. It's it's very quiet. It's very modern. Um, their clinic is it's a clinic. It has clinic items in it. So Theraballs, so Therabands, anything with a Thera in it. Yeah, Plimps, table. Tables. Okay. Yeah. And I got to see someone using the Recoverex system this that they the talked about. Brain computer interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that was um it was it was just what they told us it is. And so I got to watch this person using it. He had the cap on his head, he had the functional e-stim hooked up to both arms, and the computer screen shows a picture of the arms. And he wears headphones and he's given directions for which which hand to lift up. And then on the computer screen, an arrow points to the one. The cool thing with that is the brain has the correct area of the brain has to activate in order for the e-stim to be triggered. So that's, that was really, really interesting. And so, yeah. Let me ask you a technical question about that. Cause you said it was on, it was bilateral, right? So Mm -hmm. they had e-stim on, where were the electrodes? Were they on the extensor of finger extensors and wrist extensors? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Was this person bilaterally involved? No. No. Was no. and so it was just Eastim coming through there. Mm-hmm. And did Eastim go to both the less affected side and the more affected side? Yes. Was it the I, same number of milliamps, do you know? Or was one a lot stronger on the affected side? I don't know. Oh, I didn't man. think to ask that question. You know, it's that's it's, a good question to ask when they come back on. They need to come back on, is the dealio. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, they will. Good. The th- cool thing about this person that I saw is the tone is improving. Apparently, the spasticity was so bad that um, skin issues are there. And in a few, in a few visits and a few sessions, it's it's re- improving, and it's his arm is relaxing. So that means it's affecting the brain. Yeah. So right? um, I would think so, because if you can reestablish brain control over spastic muscles, then the spinal cord can go back to being a spinal cord and not the controller of the muscles. And because it's a good, it's a good spinal cord. It's a good messenger boy. It's just a terrible brain. It's a very basic brain. And all it says is flex, flex. And that's what spasticity is. Um, did they mention how they're measuring spasticity? Are they just using the Ashworth or, okay, that'll be a question. I think that's a question I'll be asking them mm-hmm. so that we can get, yeah. So that's really yeah. cool. What else? Yeah. Was there anything besides the brain computer interface that the RecoverX that they were using that was awesome? Besides the RecoverX, is that what you're asking? I mean, it, the, once you come off the RecoverX, there is nothing as awesome, basically, mm-hmm. in rehab, mm-hmm. but maybe a couple other things. But did they impress you with any other cool things? Mm-hmm. The Neofect. Neofect? Yeah. Smart Glove. Oh, Neofect Smart Glove. So what does that do? Oh, you have to... So you play game, you put that on your hand, and then you have to do different activities. I did a fishing activity and you have to, she set it up so that I would do some radial and ulnar deviation, like with this fishing activity. And um, you have to make the correct motions in order to make it work correctly. Wow. So when are they coming on? 
we have to ask them about a very special person that they were working with when they come on. So let's not forget to do that. Okay. We won't, but we need to get them to come on. Are you, are you going to be the tip of the spear on getting Dora and Lynette back on? I sure will. Okay. I know they wanted to have some time after people were using that RecoverX and people have been using it now. So yes, I think, I think it could be enough time. Yeah. Maybe they have a little bit of data and Mm -hmm. and we can ask them like the nuance of stuff. Was the person that was interesting that you wanted to talk about the patient? Was that somebody that was using the RecoverX? No. No. Okay. It's another person. It's not a a person who's had a stroke. It's some other, it's, they have another diagnosis and. um, Such a mystery. Such a mystery. I have to keep it a mystery, right? It's a cliffhanger is what it is. It's a podcast cliffhanger, folks. (laughs) You are welcome. Yeah. So um, other people that are coming on, I'd like to review that. Yes. So we have, but Marcus Saikeli and of course the great Robert T. Sell. Both of the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, which we've talked about so many times that I think if we change the name of the, our podcast, we should change it to the evidence-based <laughs> yeah. review of stroke rehabilitation podcast. Yeah. So we're big fans. He'll be the first MD that's on. He's a physiatrist. He's the director of, wow, just about everything regarding stroke in Canada. And that is that they're coming on next week, right? Correct. So that'll be out a couple couple weeks from now. And then Mary Warren is coming on, Professor Emeritus from UAB. And Emeritus, I just looked this up. I didn't even know. It means that this is what you're going to be one day, uh, Deb. So uh, it means that you are retired, but you get to stay a professor for the rest of your life. Yep. Yeah. I actually know how that works because one of my former professors retired from the program that I teach in now, and I was able to recommend him for that status. And then- And they got they, it. They got it. Because they listened to Deb, man. You don't mess around with bad Stella. You just right. do what she says. That's right, right? Yeah, That's she's, right. She's pretty badass. <laughs> she is badass, man. In the, the Gulf R with the uh, six forward gears. Is it six or seven? Six. It's let's just say nine, nine forward gears. <laughs> nine <thing>. gears and <laughs> yeah. That's so Mary awesome. Warren. Yeah. This is exciting because she is the vision expert. She's the vision expert. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I was looking through a little bit of her research. Uh, so she lives in Lawrence, Kansas, which is not near University of Alabama, Birmingham. And uh, I guess she's retired there now. So now all she uh, has to do is talk to us on our podcast and tell us everything she knows about vision recovery, especially from the occupational therapy uh, perspective, because that's what she is and that's what she taught. I'm really looking forward to this interview with her because I do think that a lot of OTs struggle with knowing what to do around vision problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's weird because when you think of vision, you don't automatically think of occupational therapy. But that's the thing about occupational therapy. I think in some ways, it's so much more flexible than PT. Probably, I hope what she talks about is not, you know, is the cornea working correctly or, but how visual processing happens and how it is highly neuroplastic. And so you can use that neuroplasticity the brain has to maybe reestablish things that you've lost because of the brain injury. I used to tell this story in my CU talk. So 
the woman has been playing tennis from the time she was five years old, right up until the day of her stroke. And tennis involves a lot of visual acuity stuff. You got the arc of the ball and the sp- you got to pick up the spin of the ball as it hits the ground. Like it's really quick vision processing. A lot of processing goes into that. You got to look at not only the position of the other player, but where their where their force is going so that you can go into the opposite court of where they're going and you got to know where the net is and the lines and it's it's crazy visual. So anyway, so she has a stroke and she stops playing tennis and the husband comes to an occupational therapist and says, you know, there's something wrong with her vision. She's never had eyesight problems. Now all of a sudden she has vision problems and she's, you know, running into things. And I know you talked about hemianopsia, but you also ruled it out. I don't think she has hemianopsia. I think she's just like her vision is going, she's getting soft or something. The infarct was completely in a different part of the brain. And you go, wow, well, that makes sense because she was playing tennis, which involves a lot of really focused work on the brain with regard to vision. And now she's not playing tennis anymore. So those neurons, those synaptic connections are going to start to prune in a massive way throughout the visual cortex because she's not using it the way she was before. And so if you work on visual stuff, it will come back with a vengeance. Why? Because it's not injured. She loses vision, not because the infarct hit it, but because there's learned non-use, essentially Mm. learned non-use of the visual cortex. So if you're willing to work Like just because it's low hanging fruit and just because it comes back easily doesn't mean it doesn't matter. She still has lost something through this vicious cycle that the brain goes through when you lose one part of the brain and it affects all these other parts of the brain. But maybe that's something that we can ask her about. Like how, what's the neuroplastic model of getting vision back? Not because the brain was hit in the visual cortex, but because there's learn non-use. You know, I like that you brought up learn non-use of, of this part of the brain, because I, I think that we don't often consider all of the learned non-use that, that can't just, just occur because somebody has a stroke, but maybe because we're not giving them the opportunities that they need, or they're just not getting the opportunities that they used to have before because of this interruption in their life. You know, remember when we were talking with Doro and Lynette, and they brought up the role of cognition as it relates to vision and how the two are so closely interrelated. And that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about what's all involved in playing tennis. And um, I hope I hope Mary talks about some of that stuff. We'll have to ask her specific questions about that. Maybe she can give us some insight and help us understand that a little bit better. If you want to get nerdy about this, uh, the term is diaschesis or diaschesis. It's this idea that if one part of the brain dies, it's not just that part of the brain that's affected. It's that part of the brain plus every other part of the brain that that part of the brain used to talk to. And so these completely disparate parts of the brain, for instance, the visual cortex in our scenario starts to prune. It can happen like anywhere. Because we don't really, you know, it's not like it's really obvious the way an individual's brain is wired. There's these tracks, T-R-A-C-T-S, these bundles of axons that fly all different directions through the brain. 
And so you lose one area and then it affects all these other areas. And my only point is like, if you're an occupational or a physical therapist, look for the low-hanging fruit. Look for the stuff that's going to be easy to rehab just because they don't have any injury there. Just because it's an easy thing to rehab doesn't mean it doesn't matter and there shouldn't be focus on it. You know, I could see a therapist, maybe not the smart ones that listens to this podcast, but the ones that maybe don't that are thinking, well, vision, you know, it's not my thing. And that's not where the brain injury was anyway. So I'm not going to really deal with it. Let the sender do an eye doctor, but it might very well be helpful to uh, think about diaschesis or diaschesis. One small area that, that goes can affect all kinds of areas you're not thinking about. Yeah. So just to go back on that nerdy word, how do you spell that? It is D-I-A-S-C-H-I-S-I-S. And I would bet a million dollars without looking at it, it's a Greek word. It's got that kissesis. Mm-hmm. Dukakis. It has that isis at the end of it. Because you know how all medical terms are either Latin or Greek, because they came up with pretty much everything. I am going to give a link to a blog entry where I, I wrote about diaschesis or diaschesis. I've heard it pronounced both ways. So now this pruning question comes up to my brain here. Is that just is it is this occurring because of that natural pruning that happens after a stroke? Like so, it can happen anywhere, not necessarily because somebody's not doing something, but because of the stroke. Is that it correct or incorrect? Diaschesis is based on you're no longer doing something. It's really the way of defining that an area way over there will affect another area way on the other side of the brain. It's that effect. Okay. We, we so compartmentalize the brain that we think that if this, this area does this thing and that area does that thing, and that's not the way the brain operates. It, if the whole thing is flowing, a flock of birds all throughout your head. And I think it's a mistake when a lot of people think, it's, I'm you know, the left mathematical person, or I'm the right artistic person, or they're in conflict. It's such BS. The whole yeah, brain- we're all both. We're all, all of it. That's true. But mm-hmm. also, if you're doing a mathematical calculation, it doesn't just happen on the left side. It flows to all different parts of the brain. So, because it's so interdependent, if you lose one area, you actually lose a lot of other areas. And they may be the loss is more nuanced because you're not seeing it was there. Now it's not there. It's more to a diminishment probably. Mm-hmm. You so, know, I really, it's, an, it's so amazing after having been a therapist for so many years. And if you want to learn something new, do a presentation, which this is why you're so smart. I think because you do so many of them. When I started doing more and more research on mirror therapy, that's when I started to discover how many different parts of the brain do things other than what I was taught in school. So it helped me to understand that the brain isn't compartmentalized, like you're saying, but it, everything's intertwined. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's funny because my daughter just called and she always has this habit. I'm telling you, she calls me during class and my phone goes off and it's like very embarrassing. And, and she would call me during CU class. And then she, she just called right now and the phone's buzzing. And I didn't really hear what you said. All I heard was um, something very complimentary. So can we go over that again? 
Oh, just yeah, that when you I put do your it. phone down. I do a lot of, yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> what a terrible, oh, you are such a professor. Put the I phone down. Out. Now do, when you at school, when you teach in your occupational therapy program, because we have a professor in, in the neuro class that I'm, I'm involved in, and she's just like, do not pick up that phone. Like she, everybody has a laptop. That's cool. But they make them put the phones in the, in the, uh, so how are you guys dealing with that? Um, I ask people to put their phones away and not get them out during class. Most of the time, people are respectful. I, I do know that during that time when we were virtual and I was teaching virtually, there was a ton of texting going on during class. That was hard as an instructor. And I think that until people get up regularly in front of a group of people and have to talk, they don't realize how distracting side conversations are texting. Um, it, it makes you lose your train of thought. And then the other thing, which I am very guilty of, laughing. I will laugh in a class sometimes. And you know, just sometimes something over there is funny. It has nothing to do with the person who's talking. But when people start laughing, and then oh, are they laughing at me? Or are they laughing at that person over there? What's going on? Um, yeah. So, it makes you lose your train of thought, and then you have to you lose that time, you lose that momentum in the in the course. But I'm not super strict. Mm. But usually, if somebody has a situation where they need to leave their phone on, or they're expecting a phone call, if there's something going on with a kid at home, they will let me know, and then we just deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like with regard, and I know this is not a podcast about public speaking or teaching or anything, but I will say I could write a book because I've done so many CEU talks of, of things that can just be disconcerting. Like I've had situations where the whole talk is going great, but there's one person in there giving me the stink eye. They're just like, and a lot of times I misinterpreted the stink eye thinking that it was the stink eye, but they were really interested and they came up to me afterwards and they were like, yeah, I want to talk more about this thing and the other thing. Of course, I've also had the situation where somebody and they, they always sit right in front of the podium. The, the bad actors sit right in front of the podium because they want to be in line of sight of everybody and they want the attention on them. And I've had some. So what I started mm. doing after a couple of years of this is I took the podium. I always like standing on the right side of the room. And uh, I put the podium on the left side, drawing all the weirdos towards the podium. And I swear it worked great. It was right. like if there was a character that really wanted to disrupt things, they'd be over there. And, uh, you know, disruption isn't always bad. I've had people disrupt things and turn the course into something really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Coming in late, that's a great mm-hmm. one because I talked about this before, like um, the four things that humans always uh, pay attention to. And you were like, sex, um, that that whole joke. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the four things we always pay attention to, uh, can I eat it and will it eat me? And that risk of a potentially being attacked, you know, people walk in from the back of the room and everybody's back is to that person walking in their head has to snap to that person. And so I've done things where I'm I'm in the middle of the talk and I'm going, and the secret of the universe is, and I have everybody drawn in and somebody clangs through the door and everybody goes, snaps to that person. They go, 
is that is is she the secret of the universe? Is it, did she just come in here? Is that God? You know, it's like, what are you doing? You just wrecked my whole point, my whole class. And, mm-hmm. and then you feel like a, some stupid, like Harvard professor, how dare you interrupt me? <laughs> and then it's like, then you feel bad and whatever. So that was a tangent. Okay. Should we get back on who else that we have coming on? Sure. So I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been on the Podbean site and looked at our stats. But I have we, not. We, you have so not. So just, you know, I've been on vacation, a true vacation, except for getting excited about people joining the Facebook group. Yes. And that was only probably because I pestered you with it. Um, so uh, we have more listeners in Australia than we do in England and Canada combined. Wow. So, yeah. So thanks, Australia. Yeah. Yeah, so invite us down there because, but be careful because Deb will come. She'll show up. She will show up. Yeah. So we have somebody from Australia coming on, a professor. And I mentioned these guys in a podcast where they had done work on helping people that have had brain injury try to reestablish their emotional connection with other human beings. And this, of course, is mirror neurons in the brain, this thing that allows us as human beings to be very sensitive to what other humans are, are thinking and feeling through facial expressions and body postures and voice and everything that humans do. And so they, they know and we know that emotional responses are either deadened or off kilter somehow after a stroke or after a acquired brain injury. Their work has to do with trying to get that back on track. Don Newman, D-A-W-N Newman, Dr. Don Newman, Associate Professor and Research Director, Physical Medicine Rehab at Indiana University. And so they're going to come on and it's her and Barbara Zupan that is head of, she's also a, a PhD, head of course. This is in Australia, they call her head of course. I think that means head honcho. I have to ask her, Grand Puba, a speech pathology College of Health Sciences in, oh, and I forget where she's from, but I looked it up and she lives on like near the beach and it's absolutely gorgeous. So I'll have to ask her about that. But that's what they're going to talk about. Is there a neuroplastic model for reestablishing what mirror neurons do in people? Because it looked like maybe they were on the cusp of talking about that in some of their research. And so we're really looking forward to them. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what they have to say and learning from them because I'm in a couple of Facebook groups for people with traumatic brain injury or their caregivers. And it's a big struggle, the whole managing emotions and the damaged relationships that occur resulting uh, from people's inability to manage their own emotions or read other people. And I, it's just, there's such a big opportunity and need in that area. So she's from CQ University and it's CQU. So they put all three letters together before they write out university. And it's in Yepoon, Y-E-P-P-O-O-N, Australia. And this is on the, and I'm scrolling out on Google Maps. uh, It is on the Eastern seaboard of Australia. So I have questions about that. Like, because sure. she she uh, did a presentation. This is how I found out about them 
with ACRM, the American College of Rehabilitation Medicine, which by the way, I'm doing a talk with this year. So you should come virtually to that. Um, it's about neuroplasticity and some, 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 thank you. And, uh, and so it's going to be really cool. And of course, we're going to be doing it later than we usually do it. Um, 7.30, I think we said, was it? Or 7, 7.30, because in Australia, it's going to be 8 a.m. The following day, the next day. The next know, day. Right. They're, the yeah, next, they're ahead of us. They're a day ahead of us. So this is going to be kind of weird. We can ask her, what's it like tomorrow? What know, stocks right? go up? Yeah. Okay. That was weird. <laughs> Let me move on. So we got a bunch of people. Oh, and I have, I have a couple of bits of news. So first of all, remember how we were going to give 20% of everything that we made through uh, donations to our uh, Venmo account at Neurons, by the way, to the Brain Injury Association of America. Yes. Well, we were able to do that. And it was very nice to be able to give them uh, money in the, uh, the name of uh, our podcast. And so thank you for all the people that donated. Uh, we thank you. I'm sh- the Brain Injury Association of America has also thanked us or thanked you through us. So uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was, ni- that was nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's another little tidbit that nobody probably cares about except for me. The, um, you know, I was in negotiations with Springer to do a fourth edition of my book. That fell mm-hmm. through. Really? I just, yeah, I just couldn't take it. Springer, which is the fourth biggest publishing house in, in the universe, the book is published under a subsidiary of that called Demos Health. Okay. And, but they were just doing distribution for Demos and then they just bought them out. Um. And so this was the first contract that was written by the lawyers at Springer, and it was a nightmare. You know, they had this clause in there that if I didn't agree to do a revision whenever they asked for it, they would get another author to revise it, and then they would give the money to the other author. No, they, no. Yeah. Who, and I, who writes something like that? Well, this is the thing about lawyers. I really feel sorry for them because this is what they do all day. And I've heard in big law firms that lawyers just lose their, their SHI, you know what, mm-hmm. all and have emotional outbursts. They, they are under a tremendous amount of stress because this is what they're doing all day. Um, do you ever watch the show Suits? No. Meghan Markle? Yeah, no. like that isn't far off uh, mm. from, and they're throwing things and they're always angry. And so I just imagine a bunch of, a bunch of people just doing that kind of stuff. They also had another thing. It was a non-compete clause. Mm. And the non-compete clause was all about, you can't do anything in any form that might compete with uh, the book. So Sorry. Yeah. But why do people want to take other people's lives and livelihoods away? That doesn't make sense to me. You are that book. And so, you know, like even the podcast, I would have to go to them with every episode and say, I talked about something that was in the book. Is that okay? And then every talk I do and it, theoretically every class and and uh, and the, the irony is that now that I'm not doing it, of course, I'm going to write a book that's going to mm-hmm. compete with my book and I'm going to make a lot more money, but it's not about the money. It's about the fact that um, I wanted to update the book and, and mm-hmm. now I'll be able to update it in a, in a freewheeling way. I was able to keep them at bay with regard to non-compete clauses in last two contracts 
uh, the first time I did it, the editor broke down in tears after I said, are you sure you're able to negotiate this? Because I can't have it. Is, is there somebody else I should talk to? And, mm-hmm. and they started crying on the other end and it was a, a bit mm-hmm. of a scene, but I, I just can't, I couldn't deal with it. And so, no, so we're, we're not going to do that, but that's okay. Moving on. And there then, are other publishers and I'm sure you already have a plan. My plan is to self, to self-publish. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these days I actually had Hay House reach out to me, which is a big, it's kind of, you know, like a spiritual self-help type of publisher, but really? they reached out to me over the mirror therapy program, which I don't think it's a book. It's a booklet, but there are many others and, and other ways to do this. Absolutely. And I'm I, glad I, that we're talking about this because I think a lot of people get tripped up on things like that. Oh, that was weird. There's a little glitch, right? Yeah. Yeah. I saw it too. Okay. Here's a, here's a funny story. Can I tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with publishing or do you want to talk more about like getting tripped up? No, I don't want to get talk. I don't want to talk about getting tripped up. Yeah, no, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, so I called my mother the other night. She lives in New Jersey and she's 94. And you know, my my mom can be uh how do I say this politely? She can she can take something that's not dramatic and make it very dramatic. <laughs> she's from South Philadelphia, you know, I mean, she's Italian. Um and so uh so I'm talking to her and she's like Oh, it's terrible here. I'm going to do a great disservice to her voice. <laughs> it's terrible here. There's lightning and there's tornadoes and it's raining and it's just, I can't go to sleep and it's horrible. Did you hear what happened in New Jersey with no. the flooding? It was Ida that went up and the entire Manhattan subway system was flooded. I mean, there was the half of Manhattan was flooded and New Jersey got hit. Six people, more people died there than died in Louisiana where it actually hit. Oh, geez. Now so, I feel bad because my daughter's reaching out to me and I didn't reach out to her. Oh, uh, New Jersey. Yeah. you got to yeah. talk to her. Do you want to, should we take a break and you can call her now? Well, it's pretty far past. You know what we should do? We what? should record just both of us talking to our daughters. Oh, my daughter would kill me. <laughs> She swears more than I do. <laughs> That's okay. Mm-hmm. We like that. Yes. So the next thing I have on our agenda to talk about was listen. So I don't know if you know this, but I, apparently you do. The Facebook group is blowing up. What do we got? 35 people now? Well, when I made that post, there were 33. And I know that we've had, I know at least one more person joined. So I don't know, 34, 35, 36. I'm pretty darn excited about it. And you know what? I forgot about Jenica and Suzanne are coming on. And where do they work again? They work at Trio Rehabilitation and Wellness Solutions. I believe Jenica is the owner. I don't know about Suzanne. So we're going to have them on. They're in, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's Boreni, Boreni, B-O-E-R-N-E. Maybe it's just born. Maybe it's born. <laughs> like, <laughs> Brittany, where how's, how are things down in Brittany? Uh, and that is, just so you know, quite close to San Antonio. So oh. there are another couple of OTs that are going to come on and school us about all the cool things they're doing clinically. And that's another thing, you know, if you want to be on our podcast and you have a cool clinic that you're running, uh, give us a shout out and uh, we'll see if we can get you on. Mm-hmm. Or even a cool program that you're running. I noticed a lot of people in the UK 
do community services and they seem to have these specialized programs. So I'm curious about that too. Yeah. So if you're running like constraint use therapy program or a vision mm-hmm. program or a driving program, yeah. Uh, yeah. Come on on and, and tell us about it. And you don't have to like stay on the whole hour if you don't want to, you can just give us the good stuff. We'll yeah. steal it and we'll, we'll move on. I think it's important for people to hear what's happening in therapy world. We have a lot of survivors listening, and I think they need to know what's what opportunities are available for them. Yeah. So speaking of survivors, we do have a little bit more feedback through the Facebook group, and you should join the um, Noggins and Neurons Facebook group because now we're getting chit-chat going back and forth. And as you're going to see, I'm going to discuss a couple of the questions that they asked, not fully discuss it, but just kind of discuss what they asked more than anything, because we want to do some research and really answer it well. Um, I was listening to another podcast. They were talking, it was like these uh, coding nerds, like computer guys. And they were talking about how they see a future where Facebook isn't that big and Twitter isn't that big, that these really big platforms are so big that you sort of lose the sense of community and, and you try to get into these groups, but then they blow up. And I swear, I think I want to shut the door on a Facebook group. Maybe we should put it like a hundred people. And, oh. and I know that's probably not going to fly, but that's but yeah. a strategy. But you should join that's before a, we shut the door. That's a marketing Boom. strategy. Yeah. So, um, so let me go through a couple of questions because I had asked the question. Um, you had, you asked a really good question, which was, "Who are you?" and tell us a little bit about yourself. And and that was kind of cool. And I didn't chime in because. Uh, I'm shy, but um, yeah, there was some other- you're I- probably the shyest one in the group. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think deep down I'm an introvert, introvert, mm. right? I, I think I am. Yeah, okay. I just, I just, uh, I, you know, going in front of a, an audience to me is like standing at the top of a double black diamond. And I've done that before, too, where you're just like can I do this? It's just the ultimate thrill. I don't do hang gliding. I get in front of an audience and just, ah, it's great fun. Um, and it usually works out. So we, I asked the question, you know, what do you guys want us to talk about? So on the, on the podcast and we had a survivor and I'll just give her, her, um, her initials because I don't want to give her name out to the world, but it's JSD. And JSD said, I'd like to hear more about the differences between hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes and the implications for recovery. There's a brief discussion in the episode called Clarification at 531, five minutes and 31 seconds. And I would really like to learn more. It seemed to say that learn non-use is less of a concern in, in hemorrhagic stroke. And I've never heard that before. Please talk about this topic. I'm a survivor of a hemorrhagic stroke, and I absolutely love this podcast. Oh, thank you, uh, JSD. We appreciate it. And that's what, that's what we want to hear because love is a good thing. And I've sent links to several friends and therapists. Oh, and everyone has thanked me profusely. All right, cool. So um, yeah, I appreciate that she's referring the podcast to friends. I also appreciate that she was very specific in her question and this is a person who has attention to detail because she gave us the timestamp. Yes. And that's exactly what I liked about the question as well. 
She also emailed us. I don't know if you know that. I didn't. I, I wrote I her did. back. Okay, I wrote good. her back. Yeah. It was interesting how the survivor asked a question that was laser focus, whereas the therapist said, we want to know everything about X, just everything. <laughs> yeah. And and so I have an idea for the next way that I'm going to ask that question. But so that was really appreciated. So we don't have this really broad question, but a very specific question. But it makes sense that the clinicians ask broader questions because this person's looking at themselves almost as a case study, whereas the therapists are really thinking about all their patients. So I understand that. I think in the future, the question for the Facebook group and to other people that you know want to contact us is that tr- maybe try to make it a little bit more focused. And so our, I think the question should be, what's a good case study? Give us a patient. Give us a three-dimensional perspective on a patient. Well, while you're talking about all of this, I'm having a really big idea. Not that we should put this on the podcast. You should take this out. But um, you know, maybe one of the survivors in the group wants to be the case study person. Wait, why, why can we not have this in the, on the podcast? I don't know. I get nervous about my ideas. I always think, oh, they're not that great. Uh-huh. I know. Oh, no, that's shoot a, them that's, down. No, that's a really good idea, and I wonder if that will be better than going to clinicians necessarily first. All the clinicians could chime in too. I do consultations for survivors. We get on Zoom with a caregiver and hopefully the clinician. I just listen to them, see what their ambitions are, and then mm-hmm. send them a a list of suggestions that they then bring to their doctor and to their clinicians, because sometimes stuff that's in research doesn't show up clinically. The lag time between what we call bench and bedside, between Mm -hmm. what happens in research, what happens with regard to a patient in rehab, it's notoriously long. Like It's not going to be long in, in oncology because people die of cancer. Mm-hmm. So you can't delay a treatment that shows up at Sloan Kettering or or Mayo Clinic. But in rehab, you can kind of do whatever you want. Nobody's going to die of bad rehab. And so there's this huge lag time. So I like the idea of, of having a case study that we can sink our teeth into. Mm-hmm. And maybe they could send us a little bit about themselves and then have them come on and explain like what the dealio is, is with their recovery. Mm-hmm. I think too, that if we do a case study and we talk about it and we, we kind of say what our process is and the way that we think about things and link it to the research, maybe it will help clinicians to know that they're probably thinking about things the right way. I think sometimes there's just insecurities around trying something new or even doing what you think you should do, especially if you don't have a mentor available to you, which I always recommend anybody have a mentor of some type or even work in a clinic where there are seasoned therapists there, or at least people have some more experience than you do, because it's 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 hard, especially when you're a new grad. It's, it's hard to put all those pieces together in a meaningful way. And then, yeah. So do you remember the episode on research? I talked about the guy, David Sackett, the Canadian who came up with, literally came up with the idea of evidence-based practice. Yes. And one of the things he said was that it's patient-driven, that it's the patient that's sitting in front of you that drives you to the research. And then you try to get that question answered and you implement it, not just with that patient, but for any other patient that comes in with the same sequelae or comorbidity or whatever. So this idea that clinicians get overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. yeah, they absolutely do. But if you're Mm -hmm. patient-driven, then you don't have to read everything in sight. This is a good idea. I think we should do this. Well, there's more to it, but we'll talk about it later so these people don't have to get bored while we're brainstorming. Okay. But I did want to 
a swipe at least at the difference between hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. And I know you're, you're a fan of her, but I am not a fan of Jill Bolt Taylor. I know you're not. Yeah. So she, she was a brain scientist in her first book. She claimed she was Harvard trained. She was, she actually went to school in Indiana, nothing wrong with that, but she did her postdoc at Harvard. And I, I found it interesting. I didn't buy the book, but in her new book, she says that I didn't go to Harvard. I went to a school in Indiana, but I did my postdoc there. I have um, her new book. Yeah. So um, sorry. Does that mean you like me less now? No, no. Okay. No. And if my daughter was here, she'd say, well, the only reason that you don't like her is that her book sells more than yours does. And I'm like, yeah, that's what happens when you have 7 million people watch your TED talk and you're on Oprah. But Jill Bo Taylor, if you watch her TED talk, both hands move beautifully. She was a left hemorrhagic stroke. Both hands move beautifully. And I she thought has, she was, I'm sorry. I thought she was a right. Um, let's, you keep talking. I'll look it up. Okay. But let's just go with the hands. Both her hands are moving perfectly. Oh, you're right. I'm wrong. So it was left, left CVA, yeah. right hemiparesis. And look, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that she didn't go through hell. Because the scar, you know, so in her first book, she has a picture of the very dramatic scar and it's long and gnarly on her shaved head. What she doesn't have, and I always found this kind of confusing, she's a brain scientist. Why not a picture of the brain? The MRI or the computed tomography, the CAT scan, these scars in hemorrhagic stroke as they try to release the pressure on the brain of this blood that's, that's building up. They're dramatic. It's a horror show. I don't deny it. But often, once they get that blood off the brain, there's this remarkable recovery. Now, you have a larger chance of dying. So I had looked at research years ago that said that the trajectory of recovery for people that are hemorrhagic is much more steep in a good way, that it's better than the more shallow trajectory of somebody who has an ischemic stroke. So you have Sharon Stone, who's written a book, um, who had a stroke. It was a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, Jill Bolt Taylor, hemorrhagic stroke. The guy, uh, Kevin Sorbo, who was an actor who played Hercules, he also had a hemorrhagic stroke. The people that have ischemic strokes often, you know, Dick Clark is a good example. Ischemic stroke, he tried to keep going but it kind of destroyed his career. And there's a bunch of other ones. It's tough to equate the two. They're, they're dissimilar. And as I mentioned in one of the podcasts, hemorrhagic stroke is less like an ischemic stroke than an ischemic stroke is to having a coup contra coup head injury in a car accident. It turns out, I don't know, did you want to add something to that? No, I almost had to ask you to repeat that because I was lagging behind <laughs> I love when you do that. What I do? So, like in the in the one where I I did the whole class to just you, you go. The girl in the back's brain went to sleep. You're just so willing to admit well, that. But that's great. I'm yeah. thinking like I'm I'm thinking about what you're talking about, but not paying attention to what you're saying. So yeah, you know, problem. Sorry. No, that's not a problem. The girl <laughs> in the back's brain is not here right now. <laughs> so that was great. So anyway, and I'm talking a lot, so I completely understand. So I want to talk about a couple of studies where they compared hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. The first one, it was from 2013. It's an older one. It's from King's College in London. 
They had said that generally there is some suggestion among researchers and clinicians the trajectory of recovery may be faster for what's called an ICH intracranial hemorrhage, hemorrhagic stroke, than that of an ischemic stroke. That's after an equivalent initial stroke severity, right? So it agrees with this idea that hemorrhagic strokes come back better. Again, not to, I don't know, diminish anything that a hemorrhagic stroke survivor has done, including Jill Bolt Taylor. It, it's phenomenal when you recover. This is a good thing and I love it. And I'm sure you did a lot of really great things. Here's what I'll say about Jill Bolt Taylor. Good thing is she emphasized sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, she talked about how absolutely exhausted she was and why do you keep waking me up? And yeah, we know how important sleep is. I'll tell you that book changed me as a practitioner, but hearing, reading a person's account of, of their experience. So I, I learned from reading her book that I need to understand what's happening with this person. And it's different when somebody has written about their experience and they share things like, why do you keep waking me up? The other thing that she, that really changed my practice was when she talked about how people would ask her a question. She knew she knew the answer and it took her some time to find the answer in her brain. And she related her brain to like little file drawers. Like she kept searching for the answer and she appreciated the people who gave her time. And that, that really resonated with me because as a clinician, I worked with a lot of people who just would come in, ask a question. Oh, you're not answering. Oh, you must not be able to tell me the answer. Okay. Well, bye. And that always disturbed me. She's absolutely right about that. And I agree. It really bothered me when husbands would finish the sentence or the thought of the dysphagic or aphasic stroke survivor. We'll call it aphasia, but sometimes they can talk. It just takes a while to get it out. Yeah. You got that's the like, if you want to say, I speak aphasia, that's the first thing you got to do is slow down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want to talk. Yeah. Got to yeah. give them a chance. I have a little story. Yeah. So when I, had this job that I was a float therapist. I went around to all the different hospitals, all the subacute, all the inpatient rehabs, and we had a PACE program. And that was my favorite. And one day I was working in the rehab clinic and this woman comes in and she just was so excited to see me. And all she could say is, I know, I know. So she had had a stroke and then she was there for another reason. And I kept saying, I don't know her. I have never seen her before, which was not true. She had seen me at the PACE program. And I would, when they were doing activities, I would always, you know, I always had to go around and see what I could do, what I could learn about a place and just hang out with people. And she was there. So I had never worked with her in therapy, but she saw me. And then, so then of course we had a connection and um, she would get so excited. And one day I was at the PACE program when she was back there and she was getting therapy and we were just talking about places. And I mentioned of all places, Marietta, Ohio. She knew Marietta, Ohio. You know, so the sad thing is that's all she could say is I know, but we still had a connection and she was right. And I was wrong in that instance. Well, she's aphasic. She's not. No, but I have a terrible memory too. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear something weird? Yeah. Let me get on. Let me talk about Jill Bolt Taylor a little bit. So um, I just looked her up on PubMed and I don't see anything published under the name Bolt Taylor. However, I do remember looking up and seeing her resume someplace Hmm. and man, the kind of research that she was doing was like heavy duty brain research. Like it was like way over my head. It's like molecules and, and, and it was, it was intense stuff. Um, Well, her story is her brother 
had schizophrenia and she wanted to help people with that diagnosis. Yeah. And that's, that ended up being what she looked at, right? Wasn't it mental illness and Mm -hmm. the representation of molecules in the work? Yeah. Like really heavy duty brain stuff. This is why it's so frustrating that when she talks about her brain and she dramatically pulls out the brain in the TED talk, and she talks about how I went from, you know, this calculating mathematical science left brain person, and then I could feel myself shifting into being a right brain, like free flowing, free thinking person. It's like the left right brain thing was debunked a million years ago as a brain scientist. Certainly, why would you go there of all places? And it's weird because if you go online and you look for a book about stroke recovery, her book comes up and she made a great recovery and no doubt about that. You might say that she made a perfect recovery. There's no deficits in the uppers and no deficits in the lowers. And despite the fact it was on the left side of the brain where all the language centers are, there's no deficits in writing or speaking. And there's a couple of problems. Despite the huge scar, we don't know how much brain damage there was. And that's certainly forgivable in a book by somebody who's not a brain scientist, but I'd like to see the scan. And then there's also a more germane issue to this discussion, which was it was a hemorrhagic stroke and the percentages of ischemic versus hemorrhagic stroke is it's a 85% to 15% split, 85% ischemic. And the outcomes are different. So it's not a real good template for 85% of the people that have had an ischemic stroke. And she's a great communicator, clearly. Within the story of any survivor, there's going to be gems of wisdom, whether it's Kathy Spencer or Jill Bolt Taylor or, mm-hmm. you know, or Sharon Stone. Okay. Well, I'll stop I think the point, well, no, I think the point that you're bringing up right now is that everybody's story is important. Everybody has a story and everyone's story is important. And that's one of the things that I think is a little frustrating for clinicians right now here in the US because with the productivity demands, they're not able to connect with the people that they work with, hear their story, find out what's important to them and incorporate that into their practice. And I'm certain it's frustrating for the patients as well. Yeah, that's that's the side of therapy that you are really good at expressing. That sort of empathetic side of it. And you're absolutely right. Like we don't even think about, well, I'm rushed and I don't even have time to go to the bathroom. So I'm distracted and I can't do this, but I got to write the notes when I'm with the patient and I can't do it someplace else. And then I end up bringing work home with me and all that other stuff. And, and you go right to the core of the issue, which is how can I be empathetic when I'm in a rush? And it doesn't work that way. Well, the only way is probably the reason I got furloughed from the hospital because I just didn't give into that. I decided that if I'm going to be there in a room with a person, that's where I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to do. And I didn't see 15 people in a day in acute care working in the ICU. I mean, that's no. And so, you know, I don't have a job now. Well, you do have a job. Well, I do. I don't have that job. Yeah. Um, what do the Buddhists say? Be here now. Mm-hmm. You can't be here now when somebody's breathing down your neck. No, anyway, you I I think I should get back to JSD's brilliant question. What's I the difference? Too. So King's College London, they looked at 3,177 patients that were ischemic, 553 patients that were hemorrhagic. And that stat is really interesting because you always think about 85% of strokes are ischemic and 15% are hemorrhagic. And that's exactly where the stat falls. Uh, 85.2% ischemic or block strokes and 14.8% hemorrhagic strokes, bleed strokes. 
So it, it falls down, the stats are right there, 15%. That's the other thing about hemorrhagic stroke. We should hear their stories, but there's a predominance of books and all kinds of things and podcasts and everything else from people who have hemorrhagic strokes. And in some ways, it just doesn't translate well to people who have had ischemic strokes. And, you know, if somebody says, well, Jill Bolt Taylor got better, but I didn't, oh, well, that's because she's a brilliant brain scientist or because Sharon Stone is really good looking or because, uh, you know, Kevin Sorbo is it just it played Hercules or whatever, like they're special people. Well, part of it uh, is that it was a hemorrhagic stroke. So the main finding from that study was that functional outcomes were much better in people that had a hemorrhage than had an ischemic stroke. But that is a, you know, what was it 2013 article and there was another article in 2020 that was really interesting from university of florence in italy wow that'd be a cool place to visit mm-hmm. imagine working in florence <sighs> be great and yeah a few things that they found was that bleed strokes were younger by seven years and we know that younger people get better faster irrespective of bleed versus block so that could have a huge impact on outcomes Hemorrhagic stroke survivors required longer hospitalizations, hmm. about 40 days uh, for ischemic, for blocked strokes, and 80 days for hemorrhagic strokes. Well, I can tell you that my friend Anne was in the hospital from the summer until just after Christmas. She had a hemorrhagic stroke. She had a hemorrhagic stroke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would expect with hemorrhagic because there's a ginormous surgery almost always. You know, there's holes in the head. They got to clear the, clear the blood clot out. Hemorrhagic strokes had a more severe initial clinical deficit. With both groups, age and initial stroke severity was the main prognostic indicator. Well, anyway, Deb, I had a ball as usual. This is fun. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for listening and you'll hear from us soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.